Hi, and welcome to Tea and Strumpets, a Regency Romance Review. I'm Zoe. And I'm Kelsey. And, well, Kelsey, it was bound to happen at some point, but uh, for the first time in Tea and Strumpets history, one of us has a cold. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. To be fair, I had a semi-cold, but luckily the worst of it was after recording. I was like, I think I'm getting sick. And then, sure enough, two days later, I was like, dead. But... (laughs) Yeah, and when you record an audio media, like, you really don't want to have a cold, but alas, I have one. (laughs) So I'm going to do my best not to sniffle too much in front of the microphone here, everybody. But apologies for my voice today, as it is not as it usually is. It's okay. You sound fantastic. I'm doing my best. I have tea, I have water, all sorts of beverages. We're excited to talk about this book today. But before we jump into that book that we've read this week, I have a question for you, Kelsey. Hit me with it. So Kelsey, which fairy tale do you think deserves more adaptations in historical romance? Hmm, This is a good question. But um, I think the one that could use more adaptations would actually be a little bit of like the little mermaid. Ooh. Because like not the sad the actual version where she like becomes seafoam, but like cuz that's sad. But the idea of like how you could translate that into not a mermaid and a person, but like people who can't communicate but are thrown together by circumstances and having a love bloom. I think that would be a really interesting thing to read and definitely a different take on a lot of the fairy tale books you read. Cool. I had not thought about The Little Mermaid. And in fact, my fairy tale that I would like to see more of in historical romance is Rapunzel. Mm. And the only one that I know of is Once Upon a Tower by Eloisa James. And I remember really- I literally thought of that. Yeah. I, I remember really liking that one because the main character also played cello and I played cello for um, most of my life or young life, I should say. But I think that the Rapunzel story has so many elements that can be taken. And kind of like you're saying, like you take those elements of the story and you put them into this new setting and you see Mm -hmm. how they work. And yeah, um, Disney actually in the Tangled adaptation used a lot more of the elements than you kind of hear about, like the tear that heals him. That's like part of the original story. So Ah. yeah, there's some like really cool things. And of course- you're right. Yeah, we don't need magic in the story, but I think that there, you know, there, there's something to do with tears, something to do with, you know, a, a witch who takes a baby, her parents stole from the witch's garden to feed themselves. Like, you know, mm-hmm. there's all these 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 themes that I think could be really interesting. What is the tower, you know? And I think it's exactly yeah. like what you're saying with like, if she's not a mermaid, then what is the difference that, you know, or what mm-hmm. is that thing that brings them together? And that's why, like, I do love fairy tale adaptations so much because you start to see these little themes that come in, and it is very cool. Yes, I really just like a good fairy tale, and I like new twists on it, and I really think it's quite fun. Fairy tales are great, and I mean, like, they are there for a reason, and they've withstood the test of time for a reason. I totally agree. And that leads us into the book that we're talking about today, which is Chasing Cassandra by Lisa Kleypas. And Chasing... Yeah. And Chasing Cassandra has very Cinderella vibes on the cover. She's got long blonde hair. She's in a blue dress. And there is a 
a thing or two that is a nod to the Cinderella story within the book. There is some mention of shoes. She really loves shoes, I believe. Um, And there was definitely like moments of nods, but this is not a Cinderella story. No, it's not. Like there's, you'd think that based on the cover, but it's not. Uh, But that's okay because there's a lot of other interesting things that happen in this book. (laughs) Absolutely. So this week we have some author facts. And again, as we're just starting off somehow with our first Lisa Kleypas book. <laughs> oh, the travesty. I know. It's crazy. <laughs> These are just from her bio on her website. And Lisa was named Miss Massachusetts in the 1985 Miss America competition. Among the challenges she faced, wearing a banner with such a long state name when she was only five foot two. Because of the rule that contestants had to tuck the excess length of banner into their swimsuits, she became known as Miss Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe she was actually like writing um, her first book or publishing her first book right around um, uh, this time. She was one of the youngest published authors. I love that I'm just spewing a fact here that I read, but don't have it in front of me. <laughs> but uh, I'll get back to her pageant information, which is at the competition in Atlantic City. Lisa's talent was singing and original composition, which won her a, quote, talented non-finalist award. And to her delight, she got to keep the big sparkly crown, which sits on her bookshelf and now attracts keen interest from her daughter. I love that fact. I picked it because I just thought it was really fun. It is. The fact that she's like, don't worry, I got to keep the sparkly crown. (laughs) Because really, I mean, like, who doesn't want a giant sparkly crown? Like We all do. We all do. They're just fun. <laughs> exactly. They're just fun. So today we also have a historical fact, and we're going to talk about marriage stones, which were very common on the Isle of Jersey. So I've gone to talk about marriage stone because there is a point in the story where they're on their honeymoon, and they talk about a marriage stone that they find while like walking through the town in Jersey. And there's this really cute moment that comes to play later, so... It was a very endearing moment. And so then I was like, let's learn a little bit more about marriage stones. I love it. I can't wait. Yes. (laughs) So a marriage stone, nuptial stone, or lintel stone is usually a stone, rarely wood, and it's carved with the initials, coat of arms, etc. of a newly married couple, usually displaying the date of the marriage. They were very popular until Victorian times, but fell out of general use in the 20th century. So marriage stones serve as a record of a marriage, the joining together of two families, especially important in aristocratic families, and also sometimes practiced among the newly established and moneyed middle classes. So you You would have, you know, these rich families have a marriage stone, but then when the middle classes started to have more money, then, like, you know, they would create one of their own to announce that they were joined together. They were sometimes added to, like, a new home that was constructed for the married couple to live in, and especially if the dowry was very large, or it was carved into the pre-existing lintel over the main entrance or over a fireplace. The stones also clearly indicated the ownership of the building, so onlookers at the time could use it as a record to see, like, who it belonged to. Not just who the couple was, but they'd be like, ah, that family owns that building now. Very cool. Fun things to learn about for sure. And today we also have a bunch of tropes in our story. So mm-hmm. tropes that we shall discuss today are a marriage of convenience, a hero not looking for love, <laughs> friends to lovers, 
and a misunderstood hero with a tragic backstory. (laughs) The tragedies. I know. Our main characters today are Lady Cassandra Ravenel and Tom Severin. Railway magnet. Yeah. And we should mention that this is the sixth book in the Ravenel's series. And like all Lisa Kleypas books and many historical romance books, you don't have to read all the others in order to read this one. But this does have quite a bit of the interpersonal relationships of the Ravenel family that are delightful to see as you're reading this book. But I, I would actually say you don't have to read the other books in order to read this one. No, they you can kind of feel the family dynamics very easily from reading this book. And we're so close to our synopsis. But before we get there, I just want to say one more time, this is our first new release that we're doing, right? This book has come out two days before this episode drops. So we just want to say, you know, if you don't want any spoilers, now is the time to pause. Oh, yes. (laughs) Please pause, read the book, form your own opinions, and then come back and hear if we're on the same page, if that's how you like to do things, because we're going to tell all guys. That's what we always do. But As this is our first new release, we just wanted to give that warning one more time. (laughs) Yes. So our story begins at the wedding of Pandora Ravenel and Gabriel, Lord St. Vincent. So Tom Severin, who's a railway and general wealth magnet, is taking a moment away from the party in the library. He was not actually invited to the wedding. (laughs) He just kind of showed up because he knew it was happening. And he does have a longstanding relationship with the Ravenel family. However, at the moment, it's not currently uh, (laughs) – he's not currently in their good graces, one would say. So he's there and he's just kind of taking a moment away. He's sitting in a chair that overlooks the lawn where the party is taking place. So he can't actually be seen from the doorway. Which is a little awkward when he hears voices coming his way, and just as he hopes they bypass his retreat, the door opens, and then even worse, a female comes in crying, oh no! And Cassandra Ravenel is feeling really bittersweet over the marriage of her twin, Pandora. After all, she's happy that Pandora, the loud, eccentric twin, has found love, but at the same time... They've had their whole lives together, and she will miss having her around all the time. And West Ravenel, her cousin, and the man who currently has a grudge against Tom, has followed her to offer her comfort and get some understanding of her tears. Quote, It would hardly be unnatural, West commented kindly, for you to feel a touch of jealousy. It's no secret that you've wanted to find a match, whereas Pandora has always been determined to never to marry at all. I've given up looking for love. I'm only searching for someone I could come to love over time, and I can't even find that. There's something wrong with me. I'm going to end up an old maid, Cassandra said. Wes tries to dissuade these thoughts. As Cassandra says, what would you call a middle-aged lady who's never married? And he suggests a woman with standards? (laughs) Great suggestion, Wes. Yes, but... Cassandra is now on a full rant, and she's feeling bad about herself. And while she's speaking, Tom takes a peek from his chair and is immediately, quote, smitten and slain. For Cassandra is reported as a beauty of the family. And he takes one look, and he's very interested. But neither Cassandra or West have noticed him. And Cassandra, thinking they're alone in private, asks West for a favor since she's on full rant and having a meltdown, basically. She's like, Cousin West, if I haven't married by the time I'm 25 and you're still a bachelor, would you be my oyster? 
So she's asking basically if he'll marry her if she's facing spinsterhood. To which he replies, Lady Cassandra Ravenel. That is the most idiotic idea anyone's come up with since Napoleon decided to invade Russia. And listening to West's refusal, Tom is immediately struck by an impulse that he cannot ignore. And so he rises from his chair to face Cassandra, stating, I'll be your oyster. Mm. Both are very shocked to see him. West and Cassandra are like, what? Who are you? (laughs) And Tom is also a little shocked that he actually made this pronouncement out loud. He's normally a very calculated person. He doesn't just like say things on a whim, especially something such as proposing marriage. Yeah. However, instead of revoking this declaration, especially in the face of Wes Iyer, Tom doubles down saying, I'll marry you. Anytime, any terms. West encourages Cassandra to leave, and after one last twinkle of amusement at Tom, she does. Tom does not waste time with West. He immediately just asks if he can have her. If West is interested in having her for himself, they can negotiate that. And West is losing his bemusement. He says, Are you mad? Lady Cassandra isn't a possession I can hand over like an umbrella. In fact, I wouldn't even give you an umbrella. (laughs) He goes on to say that he would never let Cassandra marry Tom, especially because they're at odds right now because Tom neglected to tell the Ravenels about minerals on their property that could have been the financial salvation. And he was trying to buy the Ravenels' property for his railway line, and he knew the minerals were there, and he didn't tell them, and they were his friends. So they're currently still kind of miffed over this whole situation, even though it has turned out okay for all the parties involved. They're still like, Tom, you were a dick. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah. And for Tom, business and friendship are two different things. Like he never set out to keep the information about the mineral rights from them, but he just, it didn't benefit him to mention it. So he didn't. Ah. (laughs) And West and his brother are still smarting over this. But West also has this observation of Tom's character. He says, you may be a soulless bastard with the mindless appetite of a bull shark, but you've always been honest. And West ends the interaction by stating that the biggest reason he does not want Tom to marry Cassandra is that for him, it's always about the chase. Once he has what he wants, he loses interest, and West doesn't want that life for his cousin. A bit later, Cassandra is taking a moment on the stairs. Her corset has been laced extra tight in order to have her dress fit properly, and it's taking a toll. And oh, how we can be slaves to fashion. So that dress being too tight combined with her general melancholy over the day, she's kind of like feeling a little teary and some tears escape. And uh, great, there's somebody's shoes. <laughs> Someone else is standing next to her. And it is Tom with a glass of champagne as a, I want to say peace offering, but more just like an offering, uh-huh. just the bridge. And Cassandra asks him to join her. So they basically decide they're going to have a conversation in which neither one of them has judgments. They're kind of already laying their cards out on the table. So Cassandra mentions that Tom is meant to be a genius, and he corrects her by saying, I have an above average intellect and a photographic memory, but that is not genius. So that's kind of where we get to with Tom, is Tom is just a very smart man, and he is very driven and focused, and he doesn't let pretty much anything stop him in that sense, even friendships or people he cares about. Eventually, they get back to the conversation in the library, where Tom offered to be Cassandra's oyster. He states that he likes she will not be one to slam doors and does not need to marry for love. To which Cassandra corrects him by saying, oh, no, 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 no. 
I didn't say I didn't want love and marriage. I just said I was willing to have it grow over time. So unless that's something he can give her, she's not interested in marriage to him. And he says that what if he was incapable of love because his heart is frozen? To which Cassandra sagely replies, hearts don't start out frozen. Something happened to you. And this discussion of hearts leads him to ask how she became an expert in the heart. She attributes it to reading lots of novels. Tom personally is not given to novels, saying that they are not applicable to real life. Then Cassandra replies, quote, But life is what novels are about. A novel can contain more truth than a thousand newspaper articles or scientific papers. It can make you imagine just for a little while that you're someone else, and then you understand more about people who are different from you. Oh, hmm. I know. Chef's kiss. (laughs) Oh, seriously. (laughs) And Tom takes this information and then asks for a novel suggestion since Cassandra is so well-read. And she asks about his interests in order to pick one that he will like. After he gives his list, he asks about her interests, which turn out to be very different from his. He likes machinery and is not interested in romance. She likes naps and tea time. She also really wants to help people in a real way. I also like naps and tea time and books, so I feel like Cassandra and I would be, like, right on the same page. (laughs) I can't argue with her likes. I mean. (laughs) So they part ways with Tom renewing his offer to be her oyster, and she responds that he is no such thing. But it's all a friend. It's in a friendly way. So he does tell her that he did mean what he said about marrying her and having an instant liking of her. And she secretly agrees to the same in her own head. She does like him, but she tells him there can be no marriage while his heart is frozen. And Cassandra reenters the wedding breakfast and speaks to Lady Berwick, who has served as a guide for Cassandra and her sisters while they were on the marriage march. She just is an old... I don't know. How would you describe Lady Berwick? She's like a godmother figure where she's just there to help them navigate society because they came from kind of a secluded upbringing and she is there to be their chaperone. Yes. She also does like not mince words. No. Um, In fact, Lady Berwick reminds Cassandra that she should not be worried about Pandora and about her own marriage prospects. She will be next. But that being said... She should not be so picky over her suitors. After all, she did have proposals this last season, but she turned them all down. And while turning down the suitors is her prerogative and understands to go on to a next season and continue to turn down suitors, it will not reflect well on her. So after breakfast, Tom corners Devin Ravenel, the head of the family, about Cassandra's hand in marriage. <laughs> we already know he's asked to West, but now he's going to the head of the family. He's like, yeah, West didn't have the power anyway. And, you know, I think I want this. So I'll just go and negotiate elsewhere. <laughs> yes. And Devin responds is a damning no, stating you would eventually find her smothering, inconvenient. You'd grow cold to her. And then I'd have to kill you. And then I'd be obliged to revive you so West could have the satisfaction of killing you. <laughs> and Tom, in fighting for his case, does sincerely apologize for the whole mine minerals incident. Devin, who has been friends with Tom, realizes his sincerity and honesty, but even forgiveness is not enough to let Tom marry Cassandra. And Devin can see that there is more going on with Tom and inquires about his life. Now, for years, Tom has loudly declared that he only has five feelings, to which... 
when asked about why marriage is becoming important to him, Devin pinpoints that this may be stemming from loneliness. And Tom exclaims, damn it, that makes six. Their conversation, however, is interrupted by Sims, the butler, who informs Devin that the boiler in the kitchen has been making some clanging noises and something just blew off of it. And since West is off somewhere on the property, Tom offers to help with the boiler as he is an expert in steam engine mechanics. After looking it over, Tom knows exactly what to do. Quote, Severin grinned at the cook. Give me five or six hours and I'll have everything back in working order. Devin felt more than a little apologetic about putting him to work when the rest of the guests were relaxing. Quote, Tom, he began, you don't have to. Finally, Severin interrupted cheerfully, unbuttoning his shirt cuffs. There's something interesting to do at your house. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So even though Tom has a lot of money and he like invites himself to wedding with lots of people, he doesn't actually want to hang out with a lot of people. No. He's much more happy fixing the boiler. Yeah. While this is happening, Cassandra is upstairs, ready to curl up with the dogs and a good book. Also my favorite thing. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. When she comes across Around the World in 80 Days by Jules Verne, which she's like, ah, this would be a great first novel for Mr. Severin. So she comes out of her room to figure out how to deliver the book to Tom, and she finds out that Tom is currently occupied fixing the boiler in the kitchen. So she decides to head there herself. She does indeed find him in the middle of work. While apologizing for the interruption, she offers him the novel, saying it's about an Englishman who makes a bet about going around the world in 80 days. Mr. Severin's perplexed gaze met hers. Why read an entire novel about that when you could obtain the itinerary from a travel office? She smiled at that. The novel isn't about the itinerary. What's important is what he learns along the way. That's a foreign concept to Tom. But (laughs) since they don't know... (laughs) They don't know, since they both don't know most of the people at the party, Cassandra offers to stay and chat with Tom while he works, and they get to know each other a little bit more. And he tells her about working as a mechanical engineer, and what that is, and also about how he has three rules to live by. Never lie, always do favor for people whenever possible, and remember, everything they promise in the main part of the contract can be taken back in the fine print. Nice. (laughs) And Cassandra goes on to tell him a few select rules for debutantes. The most important being, quote, never let the dogs in the room when you're working with feathers and glue. (laughs) Oh, the Ravenels, always in trouble. (laughs) Yes. They also get into their childhoods. She tells him about her neglect at the hands of her father, and he tells her about his father leaving the family, which forced Tom to get a job to help support the family as a train boy, selling newspapers and food. After that, in a very cute moment, Tom offers to teach Cassandra how to solder some of the pieces he's working with. And they have a lovely moment together, and Cassandra tells him that he should call on them in London, where they can discuss the book. And it's all very sweet until Devin comes in and is very mad that he, that Tom allowed Cassandra near open flames. But after a brief dialogue, when Tom tells her that he is going to London when he's done with the boiler, Cassandra ends up taking her leave. That evening, one of the maids returns the book that Cassandra lent to Tom. Quote, he'd proposed marriage in the morning and abandoned her by evening. What a frustrating, fickle man. And then four months pass. It's now October, and neither Tom nor Cassandra have spoken to or seen each other, but Tom has not stopped thinking about her. 
At lunch one day with Reese Winterbourne, Lady Cassandra's brother-in-law, Tom is told that West Ravenel is now engaged to Phoebe, Lady Clare, and Tom has actually been invited to this wedding, which is happening shortly in Essex. And that is another book <laughs> called Devil's Daughter yes. in the Ravenel series. So obviously this book is kind of taking place throughout other pieces of the series. Mm-hmm. Tom tells him that West shouldn't waste the invitation because he's not going. Reese asks if it is because of Lady Cassandra and then drops the tidbit that the interest was not just one-sided on Tom's part. And while this is good information for Tom, he decides to go about and explain that love is not real. We as a society just decided he could never marry, only five feelings, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Later that day, heading back to his office, Tom sees a young boy looking for cigarette butts in the street. And as he's looking at this young boy, a gust of wind blows his hat off his head, and the young boy snatches it. To which Tom's like, well, that hat's gone. Not even going to bother chasing the kid. Like, I'm not going to find him in the slums. He knows where he's going. It's just a hat. Mm -hmm. And he goes into his office and goes about his day. So his secretary, Barnaby, gives him the rundown of things to do. We find out that Tom is a very busy man, not looking for awards or honors, but is really dedicated to the work on hand. He's even planning to learn Japanese in order to understand his business dealings he has in the works. Also, he tells his secretary to go out and buy him a copy of Around the World in 80 Days. And Barnaby leaves, but then comes back in again with Tom's hat. The boy from outside returned it instead of taking it. And confused... And intrigued, Tom goes outside to talk with the young boy. And there he meets young Basil, who is very proud. He is not a thief and he does not take charity. And so Tom gives him a shilling for returning the hat and then, quote, Tom's better judgment advised him to leave the matter as it were. There was nothing special about this boy. While helping an individual child might satisfy a benevolent impulse, it did nothing for the thousands who lived in filth and poverty. Tom had already donated large sums, as ostentatiously as possible, to a host of London's charitable groups. That was enough, but something nagged at him, probably because of Winterbourne's lecture. His instincts were telling him to do something for this urchin, which was a good example of why he usually tried to ignore them. So Tom offers the boy a job sweeping the office, muttering that if young Basil robs him, Winterbourne is going to foot the bill. And a month later... So now we are five months into this book. <laughs> Tom yes. is heading to Essex for West and Phoebe's wedding. He has told himself that rather than be on the periphery of the event, he's going to take part of all of the events. He does not always enjoy these things. He likes his comforts, quote, but Tom was so tired of months of numb, empty nothingness that even this panoply of discomforts seems like an improvement. Upon his arrival, he meets West and Phoebe in the entrance hall. West is glad to see him which is an about face from when they met at Pandora's wedding. Turns out Tom did no small favor to West by helping him smuggle his friend Ethan Ransom out of London over the summer. This is Dr. Garrett Gibson's book. Highly recommend. Another Ravenel book called Hello, Stranger. Mm -hmm. Ugh. So good. <laughs> yes. Also, it turns out that Ethan is related to the Ravenel family. He is half-brother to the Ravenel sisters. Yes, a bastard, as it were. Yes. We also get the cutest interaction between West and Phoebe's son by her first marriage. He calls West dad, and West turns into the biggest milksop you ever saw. <laughs> it was so cute. It's so cute. And Phoebe apologizes for this whole emotional ceremony, to which Tom replies, 
No apology necessary. As this is a wedding, I expected some drama and weeping. I just didn't think it would all come from the bridegroom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And Phoebe goes to take Tom to his room, and she inquires about his marriage prospects. As she asks what he is looking for in a wife, a voice butts in. Mr. Severn wants an independent and practical wife, pleasant but not demonstrative, intelligent but not chatty. She'll go away when he wants, appear when he wishes, and never complain when he doesn't come home for dinner. This voice, of course, belongs to Lady Cassandra, who is still displeased by how Tom took his leave from Pandora's wedding and left the book. Faced with her ire, Tom lets her know that he did read the novel she suggested but did not find it worth the time to read it. She inquires as to what he learned from it. He tells her, but she promptly tells him that he got it all wrong. Tom, of course, took a literal lesson from the book and did not understand what the journey taught Phineas Fogg along the way. Yes, this is going to become a running theme throughout this book of Tom getting the lessons incorrect. Mm Mm-hmm. So Cassandra gives Tom a set down, and when they had parted last, they had agreed to be friends, and Tom basically is now like, well, I can't be friends with you because I'm very interested in you. And they are kind of bickering back and forth, and Phoebe is really enjoying this verbal tennis match. And she can see that there is a spark there. And so she's like, hmm. And... After Cassandra leaves and Tom's all like, ugh, women, (laughs) Phoebe gives him a little advice by using a literary example, talking about the plot of Persuasion (laughs) by Jane Austen. And Tom just, his literal engineer brain just can't fathom it. But so what can you do? And Phoebe shows him his room and leaves him to his own devices. Later that night at dinner... Cassandra is plagued by terrible shoes. We've all been there. The heel was too high and they just were never broken in properly. She slips them off while at dinner because like who hasn't? But then (laughs) upon trying to get them back on, she realized that one of them was missing. So she proceeds to leave dinner with one shoe on and tiptoes on the other, but Tom is pretty observant and has noticed her distress. And of course, she tells him her woes in a hushed voice and then goes to the conservatory to have a moment alone and get some relief. She pulls off her remaining shoe and finds the back of her heel is blistered and bleeding. And as she throws off her offending shoe, Tom arrives with the other offensive partner. He had received it by telling a footman he thought that one of the levels was off on the table. It was, so it wasn't a lie. Because remember, Tom's first rule is never tell a lie. (laughs) (laughs) And he was able to find her wayward shoe. And they get to chatting about her shoes and then about her need to marry and why they cannot be friends. And Cassandra thinks that she's going to get a kiss from Tom, but he demurs because, quote, According to basic geometry, one kiss could change your life. So they'd settle for a shoeless dance in the conservatory. It is marvelous. She even says, dance with me and never stop. And that is actually the last straw that breaks the camel's back. And Tom goes in for a kiss. And he says, this is why we cannot be friends, came his rough whisper. I want this every time I see you, the taste of you, the feel of you in my arms. I can't look at you without thinking of you as mine. And then he goes on to ruin it by saying, my God, I don't want this. If I could, I'd crush it like a cinder beneath my boot. Uh, Because it's a feeling and he doesn't want to increase his feeling count. 
But then after some beautiful lines about wanting her, they part ways alone. And more time passes. Through November, Tom is an ass to everyone. And eventually he finds a prospective bride for himself. Her father is impoverished and she has no problem trading herself in marriage for a lot of money and security. However, he cannot forget Cassandra's kiss, so he consults the best-known authority on this sort of conundrum, Jane Austen. Quote, He bought a copy of Persuasion as Phoebe had recommended, hoping to find an answer about how to deal with his personal dilemma. And while he is not sold on persuasion, as he can only derive the lesson of never let relatives interfere with an engagement, <laughs> he, t- he does think that if he reads enough novels, he may be able to solve the problem of his personal life. Quote, maybe if he read enough novels about the problems of fictional people, he might find some clue about how to solve his own. One day at the office, Basil is sweeping and is incessantly scratching He has lice, as many slum children do. And Tom tries to get Barnaby to deal with the problem, but Barnaby runs away in terror because he really is afraid of lice. So Tom is stuck dealing with the itchy little boy. So he packs him up and takes him to see Dr. Garrett Gibson. And Dr. Gibson sees the issue straight away. However, she doesn't have time currently to see the boy. Tom insists that it must be her so he knows it's done properly, and she protests saying that she's supposed to have lunch with her sister-in-law, Cassandra, who also just happens to walk in and tells her it's fine to delay lunch. So between the three of them, they get Basil deloused and clean with new clothes from Winterborns. Cassandra entertains everyone's with songs such as Some Ducks Don't Like Puddles and My Dog Thinks He's a Chicken. Very Cassandra (laughs) Pandora- We had nothing to do, so we made up our own things as children songs. Yes. And after Dr. Gibson and Basil leave the room for a teeth cleaning, Tom cannot resist stealing a kiss from Cassandra. Watching her work with such a wayward child with such good cheer, he is undone. And it does not go further, however, and Cassandra goes to take her leave. However, she is concerned for Basil and suggests that Tom take Basil in as his ward. Tom persists, saying... He's happy to help the boy, but he's not taking him in as a ward. And this leads to an argument about his frozen heart, and they part ways at odds. So after the delousing, though, at the end of the day, Tom sends Basil back to St. Giles. And the season continues. Cassandra sees Tom about with Miss Adelia Howard and feels a spark of jealousy. And this leads her to make the acquaintance of Lord Lambert, an eligible bachelor. And... Lord Lambert and Cassandra share a dance, and people instantly remark on their matched golden beauty. And Tom is there with Adelia, and Adelia makes a comment about Cassandra basically being a blonde bimbo. And Tom calls her out, and while they laugh it all off in societal good humor in front of everybody else, they know that there's not a match happening there, because Tom can't be with someone who's just blatantly cruel and uppity. Yes. However, over the next month, Cassandra is seen about town with Lord Lambert, but she's not really convinced, except for the fact that she doesn't really want to turn down another proposal because she's afraid how the ton may take that sort of snubbing. However, she cannot forget Tom, but she really can't look past his frozen heart. Then comes the night of an art exposition. Kathleen, Devon's wife, is meant to be Cassandra's chaperone for the evening, and Lord Lambert is there with his father. 
who is skeezy AF. Yes. <laughs> Literally, Cassandra meets the man for five minutes, and he suggests that if Lord Lambert hadn't gotten there first, he would have been on her doorstep. And the exchange goes like this. I'm sure any woman would be honored by your attention, my lord. So far, I've found no one worthy of them. His gaze traveled over her. You, however, will be a charming addition to my household. As my bride, Lambert said, chuckling, not yours, father. Ugh. Ugh, yeah. Both of them. Ugh. A short time later, Lambert drags Cassandra into another room to, quote, give her what she wants. He tries to force himself upon her, but luckily Cassandra is able to get him to stop. While they were not discovered, Lambert is happy to tell her that he has all the cards. After all, even a scandal, not of her making, can ruin her. She leaves telling him she wants nothing to do with him ever. And she asks Kathleen if they can leave. And Kathleen quickly sees something is wrong and gets Devin and the carriage. And he knows something is up. And Cassandra tells him and Kathleen what happened. Quote, it was my fault for not objecting more strongly at the beginning, Cassandra said miserably. And the dress, it's too tight and not ladylike enough. And God help me, although Devin's voice was quiet, it had the intensity of a shout. You caused none of what he did. Nothing you said or did. Nothing you wore. It is decided that Lord Lambert will be informed that he is to have nothing to do with Cassandra again. Because Devin rocks and he is very supportive. Yes. On Tom's end, Basil has lice again. And his new clothes are no more, probably stolen and sold by the uncle, quote unquote, he lives with. And Tom realizes that while Basil should not matter to him, he does. So he offers him a place in his household as a houseboy, and he can still come sweep the office. So... Essentially, he does what Cassandra asked him to do, but in his own Tom way, which is, you know, better, but not quite what she had in mind. But that's okay. The boy doesn't have lice anymore. He gets rid of his lice. He cleans him up. He gives him new clothes. He gives him a respectable job. He gives him a roof over his head and food and wages. And that's pretty darn good for a, a boy who grew up on the streets. Yeah. And later he goes to Jenner's, which is run by Pandora's husband. And while he is there, it comes out that Cassandra has been publicly slandered by a suitor. And Tom is ready to kill the rat bastard. But St. Vincent tells him that he's only going to make it worse. He's just got to leave it alone and the family will deal with it. So he leaves Tom at the club and Tom is left to ponder how to expose a rumor as a lie without making it worse. And after this news about Cassandra's public shaming, the family has gathered to figure out how to deal with the damage. So far, Lambert himself is nowhere to be found, and they are not sure how to repair Cassandra's reputation. As they are discussing this turn of events, the Marquess of Ripon, Lord Lambert's father, is announced and he is there to propose to Cassandra. He wants to make up for what his son has done. Everyone is trying to wrap their heads around this when Tom Severin strolls in. Can't leave well enough alone, that guy. Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> After letting anticipation build, Tom lets it drop that he is now the owner of the London Chronicle, which is the paper that published the slanderous tale about Lady Cassandra. And as he is the new owner, he knows who wrote the article. Turns out it was none other than Lord Ripon, who was basically trying to use the situation with his son to his own advantage to get Cassandra to marry him. Because he's skeezy AF, 
Yes. And Lord Ripon is outraged and storms out, never to be heard from again. So even with the truth out, Cassandra is still on thin ice. And Tom begs a moment alone with Cassandra at this point. And the family begrudgingly allows it because Cassandra requests it as well. And during their private moment, Tom proposes that they marry. And Cassandra is still unsure because, you know, his frozen heart and all. But he proposes that they go about it like a business negotiation. They can lay all their cards out on the table and have a contract between the two of them and use that contract throughout their marriage to hold each other responsible. As he's trying to win her over to the idea of marriage to him, they have encounter number one. He just cannot resist touching her, and she gets much pleasure from his fingers. Until the other Ravenels seek an entrance to the room. And that's embarrassing, but luckily, no one actually walks in. (laughs) And in the end, Cassandra accepts his marriage proposal, quote, contingent upon our negotiations and subject to my family's approval. So they set out to get their marriage contract hammered out. Just the two of them in a room together, sorting through the details. No fine print. But first, the family must approve. And this is a split decision. West is firmly against it, and Devin is not keen on the idea. But Cassandra tells them how when Tom mentioned the contract, it really swayed her to the ideas. And Devin, at first, Devin and West are like, what? How dare he suggest a contract? And she, she's like, no, 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 it's not like that. It's... You know, it's obviously not legal, but it's basically our way of laying the cards out so we understand each other better. And Devin actually is swayed along with her, seeing that, like, Tom is really trying to take Cassandra and her feelings into into consideration. And, quote, from my own experience, I can say this with authority. There's no better way to become familiar with Tom Severin than negotiating a contract with him. If you're still speaking to him by the end of it, I'll consent to the match. (laughs) So the next morning, Tom is at Ravenel House to begin their negotiations. Cassandra is a little shocked to find that her future husband is significantly richer than her sister's husband. Not exactly what she had pictured, but not the end of their conversation and learning about each other in the slightest. So they enter a study to do their contract negotiations, and the family is set to check on them at regular intervals. Throughout the talks, Cassandra gets to know more of Tom's past. He is trying to share with her as best he can, something that does not come naturally to him. She finds this a very good sign, quote, Yes, she would let herself love him, not as a martyr, but as an optimist. And then we have our contract negotiations. So first, Cassandra finds out that Tom doodles in the margins to help him think, and Tom regrets how he handled himself with Devin over the whole mineral rights issue. Uh, Tom is against clutter, fringe, and doilies. He concedes it is permissible on clothing if it is fashionable that year, but never on any kind of nightwear. That is the line. (laughs) Cassandra is also allowed one dog, despite Tom's protests, which are excellent, frankly, because dogs are lovely. Breakfast together will be early so Tom can get to the office. Sleeping arrangements. They will have their own rooms, but Tom will visit often. Also, Cassandra promises to never use silence in an argument. This leads to a conversation about shoulders, and then Cassandra finds herself in Tom's lap being kissed until West arrives. Quote, Although I seem to have caught the two of you in a compromising position, my moral pedestal is, alas, too short to give me a clear view of who's doing what to whom. Therefore, I'll spare you the sanctimonious finger wagging. <laughs> 
So contract negotiations are broken for a second because West and Phoebe are leaving, but West first wants to apologize to Tom for his behavior towards him. Despite all the negative, Tom has only ever helped their family, and so he is like, you've actually only ever been decent to this family, so I apologize for being an ass to you. Also, Ethan Ransom, our good old detective half-brother, has found Lord Lambert, and he is now out of the country. After West's departure, they get back to the contract. And now they talk of kids. Cassandra is not going to allow him to be an impartial father. He must be around the children. And then they speak of Basil. Cassandra has been worried about him, so Tom lets her know that he's fine and currently living at his house. However, Cassandra is not satisfied, so requests some leeway to do with him as she sees fit. And then they discuss the honeymoon. Cassandra is more looking forward to nesting in her new home, while Tom insists that as newlyweds, they'll want privacy. Cassandra is uncertain why that is necessary, so Tom sets out to show her when they are interrupted by the tea cart, proving why a honeymoon is necessary. (laughs) Things are winding down, and Tom reveals that while he does not mind Cassandra meeting his family, that may not be possible since they refuse to see him. His wastrel father showed up after Tom had made some money and spun a tale about missing the family. And uh, he, though, proved himself all too happy to take Tom's money that was offered to him to stay away. And his mother found out that he'd basically offered his father money to leave again. And she's furious with him. And the sisters took her side. So Tom was trying to protect the family from this awful man. And yet they were like, no, but he gives us legitimacy. And they were all mad at him. So that's his family dynamic. Yikes. (laughs) And with that last revelation about Tom's past, that wraps up the negotiations. And now we're going to have a Christmas wedding. Woohoo! It is a rainy day, but the ceremony and wedding breakfast take place without any problems. And soon Cassandra finds herself on their private railway car, specially designed by Tom to have the smoothest ride along the tracks. And I will say that Lisa Kleypas in preparation for the release of Chasing Cassandra has been sharing all sorts of like photographs on her Instagram that were inspirations for Chasing Cassandra, including some private railway cars. And holy mackerel, they are stunning. You guys should take a look. I can only imagine. I will take a look. In their rooms, Tom begins his seduction of a reluctant Cassandra. Luckily, her sister gave her some wonderful advice for the occasion. Pandora says... You may as well toss your dignity overboard right away. It's dreadfully awkward your first time. He'll want to do things involving body parts that really shouldn't be keeping company. (laughs) Just remind yourself that things you and he do in private are secrets only the two of you will share. There's nothing shameful about an act of love. And at some moments, it stops being about bodies or thoughts or words. It's only feeling. And it's beautiful. So we have encounter number two, and Cassandra has to teach Tom about cuddling afterwards. That has, until now, not been part of his bedroom habits. So they travel to the Channel Islands, specifically Jersey, and have a lovely seaside honeymoon. Tom buys a present for Basil, and they are both taken by the tradition of carving a date stone on the day of a couple's anniversary, like we talked about in our history fact. They find one that looks like it has an infinity symbol on it. Cassandra is not impressed, but Tom explains why it is much more romantic than just hearts. Quote, linking their names with Euler's infinity symbol means... He paused, considering how best to explain it. The two of them formed a complete unit, a togetherness that contained infinity. Every day of their marriage was fulfilled with unlimited forever. 
It's a beautiful concept. He paused before adding awkwardly, mathematically speaking. (laughs) After this sentiment, Cassandra takes him back to the hotel and we get encounter number three. And then they arrive back in London after a brief but lovely honeymoon and Cassandra sets out to meet the household staff, but Basil is her main concern. She is dismayed when she finds out that he has been living in the boot room, despite how happy the boy is with the situation. She goes to tell Tom that it is not okay and Basil needs to feel more a part of the family. And Tom explodes, telling her that this sort of thing was good enough for him. And here we get more of Tom's past, how even though he was taken in by a kind engineer and lived with the family, he was always kept apart. So much so that when he asked if he could court the man's daughter, he was essentially turned out of the house, betrayed yet again by a father figure. And Cassandra tells him that that was wrong and no child deserves that, not him and not Basil because of what happened to him in the past. Hmm. Tom leaves the house to digest this information. And when he returns, he's had a good think and has been swayed to her way of thinking. Quote, I didn't make this decision to humor you, Tom muttered. You made some logical points I had to agree with. Her fingers comb slowly through the fluid black layers of his hair. And you care about him. I wouldn't necessarily put it that way. I just want him to be safe and comfortable and happy and for no one to harm him. That's caring. (laughs) It sure is. And a fortnight later, Basil has been firmly adopted by Cassandra. He is being dragged hither and yon, but luckily still has a respite of going to the office every day with Tom to do his sweeping, even though Cassandra will end that when they acquire a tutor for him. And Cassandra accompanies Tom to the office one day, and everyone there is fawning over her. Basil leaves to go sweep outside, exclaiming, Mama, look down there and watch me sweep. Cassandra has told him to call her that, and while Barnaby is shocked, Tom says nothing. Things do get heated when Barnaby gives Tom a proposal for a bill where he will acquire land beneath some tenement buildings without worrying about the people inside those buildings. Cassandra is shocked and tells him that she is going to take it upon herself to create a charity to help these people find low-cost housing. Tom says he expects that she'll want to use some of the land he has and the people in his office, and to steal Barnaby maybe to help with logistics. She replies, I might. Then we get this lovely exchange. Quote, Do you think I could succeed? Cassandra whispered. Lady Cassandra Severin, Tom said quietly. That you'll succeed is not even a question. He gave her a wry glance. The question is, are you going to spend the rest of our marriage trying to make me live up to your standards? Yes, that's very cute. I love that. Because he basically is just like, okay, you want me to make me a better person? Here's the tools. You can undermine me anytime you want, lady. <laughs> Suddenly, they're interrupted by a shout from Basil. His uncle has returned to kidnap him. Tom runs outside and stops the man, telling Basil to get out of the hack. Uncle Batty charges Tom, but luckily Tom was not raised a gentleman and prevails in the fight. Uncle Batty will bother Basil no more. However, Tom is knocked on the head pretty good and does not come out of the fight uninjured. Before he passes out, though, he tells Basil, You're my boy. No one takes you away from me. No one. And after the ordeal, Tom and Cassandra are living a life together. They have a new puppy whom Basil adores, and they are shaping up to live happily ever after. Since he is still recovering, though, Tom has one last revelation for Cassandra. Quote, when I woke up this morning, I realized something. What is it, dear love? She whispered. What Phineas Fogg realized after traveling around the world. Oh, she blinked and raised herself on one elbow to look down on him. 
The money meant nothing to him at the end, Tom said. Whether he won or lost the bet, that also meant nothing. All that mattered was Auda, the woman he fell in love with along the way and brought back with him. Love is what's important. His gaze locked with hers, a smile deepening at the outer corner of his eyes. That's the lesson, isn't it? Ah, oh, and then they say, I love you. Yay. And this brings up to our epilogue, which takes place six months later. Cassandra and Tom are out on the beach with Basil, and they're packing up when suddenly Tom spies Tom Sawyer among their things. Aghast, he asked why Cassandra brought it, and she was like, oh, I, it's one of your favorites. I thought we could uh, read it while we were here. And Tom says it is one of his favorites, given the lesson it teaches to the younger generation. To which, never do your own work if you can make someone else do it for you, Basil enthusiastically recites. That's not the lesson, Cassandra said. <laughs> However, the reason Tom is upset about the book is because he has a special surprise for Cassandra in the form of Jules Verne, author of Around the World in 80 Days. And apparently he doesn't like Mark Twain. <laughs> so Cassandra is really touched at Tom's gesture, seeing as like this book is partly what brought them together. And now he's brought the author to come talk to the family. And she gives him her secret signal of saying how like touched and how she really appreciates his caring by touching her fingers to the infinity necklace. That she wears that he gave her. Aw. Adorable. So cute. Well, I can't wait to talk about this book more. So shall we quickly adjourn to the parlor? We shall. We wanted to remind you all that this month we are sending out bookmarks if you guys want to leave us a review. Reviews really help us get found by other listeners. And so if you'd like to leave us a review either on Apple Podcasts or Facebook, that would be fabulous. And if leaving a review isn't something that's in the cards for you, we would also love it if you like what you're hearing here, if you tell a friend. Yes. And if you have a book recommendation, we'd love to hear from you. If you have an inclusive author you love, we want to hear about it and share it. So let us know through our email, romancepod at gmail.com. And if you'd like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram at T as in Tom and as in Nancy Strumpets. Twitter, the same. Facebook slash TN Strumpets, Pinterest slash TN Strumpets, and YouTube by searching our name. Yes. And if you really want to be in the know, sign up for email notifications on our website. Our website is romancepod.com, and there you can find episodes, more information about us, and other resources. So take a look. And finally, also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Overcast, pretty much anywhere that you find podcasts. Maybe on the app you're listening to us right now, <laughs> we're there. So, Zoe, what are your general thoughts on this? So I thought this one was interesting because I was pretty divided on how I felt about this book. Mm -hmm. There were moments that I really, really liked it. And those were the moments that Cassandra and Tom were together. Generally, yes. I admit that I found this book very underwhelming. Mm -hmm. I felt like it had a lot of promising moments and it just failed to capitalize on those moments. 
I felt like there were some interesting things about Tom. I really liked Tom as a character, and I know we'll get into him more later. Mm -hmm. But I also felt like there were things about Tom that just didn't quite get taken over the finish line. Mm. That would have made him like a 10. Yeah. You know what I mean? 100%. And really, really interesting. Um, There were moments in the plot that I just loved, like when he freaking bought the newspaper for her. Yeah. Just, like the, that, that plot, that twist was so great because it was like, you know, they couldn't figure out from the newspaper who had written this thing. And so he just went and bought it. And, he, you know, it was it was a rash decision for him because he was the kind of guy that normally took like months, you know, working out a contract. Mm-hmm. And instead, he just like went and bought the fucking newspaper. Oh, and I like, love it because they even said they're like, no one can buy a newspaper in a day. And they're like, Tom can. <laughs> yes. Anyhow, so I, I liked that. But generally, I felt the first like 100 pages of the book were very slow. Yes, it was interesting that it was so like, I appreciate what she did and the fact that she was like, chronicling their each meeting because it was yeah. showing that it was like over a long period of time and that like they did give thought that. to the relationship, which I did like that, but it was kind of broken up in that sense. And so it kind of made it hard to get that flow going. I just felt like they shined so much when they were together and there was so much of the book where they weren't together. Yes. And so I just wish it had been edited down so that there was actually more time and development between their relationship mm-hmm. because you'll probably those who are listening to the synopsis will realize like we didn't get to them like really getting to know each other until the contract negotiation, right? And until like that, that's when they really start to develop. I mean, and it was cool that they had that time beforehand over time to get to know each other, Mm -hmm. to kind of lust over each other, to – I really liked that, but I just still felt like in the book there was a lot we didn't need and it would have been stronger if there was more – of them. Yeah. I a hundred percent get that. And I um I think the biggest thing for me was that um I thought that Tom was a really fabulous character and I did really enjoy their interactions together. I think that what let me down was that I felt like they're I feel like I didn't get to know Cassandra as well. Yeah. Which I was bummed about because She is talked about in the other books, but her other sisters, you know, kind of, you know, overshine them. And they're such these, like, formed characters. And yet she kind of is, like, I miss out on that. And I think that that was what was hard for me is because I really wanted to know more about her, especially since Tom had such definitive character traits. And he was so, like, like, you could really get an understanding of him. Like, I didn't feel the same about Cassandra in that sense. I would, I would agree. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about her. But I also felt like the conflict in this book, like it just didn't have the right balance. You know, like the conflict at first was her family won't let them marry. Then it was Cassandra doesn't want to marry him because he has a frozen heart. And then it was they have to marry because – of her reputation. And then it was like, Basil's going to be taken away from them. Yeah. It was just kind of, it felt, it felt very forced, especially the Basil thing. And I'll be perfectly honest. I kind of disagreed a little bit with them taking in Basil. I, 
as a ward, I thought it was unnecessary. I thought that Tom bringing him into his household and giving him a better life and like doing a little education with him was good enough. And I mean, it was it was fine that they they picked him up as a ward, but I just I felt like what Tom was doing with Basil was like above and beyond already. And I thought it was very logical. And like, maybe I just am more of a logical person. No, and I, I think that what you get there is I think, but this is what I mean about not getting to know Cassandra as well, because for Cassandra, yeah. it was important that he have a friend and a family. And I think it was because Cassandra did feel so neglected. She was lucky because she had Pandora and her sisters and Basil has no one to look after for him and no one to like, go to when he's feeling upset, you know, so for her taking him in because she realizes like he's kind of special in a way. I mean, special in the sense that like he he f- is special to them. Like he's his personality, there's something about it that they really want to protect and encourage and I think that it was important to her to create that family atmosphere because family is really important to her, but because we really didn't get a lot of that evolution of her and we really didn't go into her past very much in this book. Like, Devin tells Tom about her past, but Cassandra really doesn't tell Tom about her past. Like, she kind of mentions it, but it's not – like, we just don't get into her feelings on her past and, like, that sort of thing. And that's where I feel like maybe you felt like that was enough for Basil. And I was like, it was enough for Tom, but it wasn't enough for Cassandra. But that was something you had to infer based on what you already knew about the family history. Yeah, I I agree. There's just something missing about this book. And it it was interesting because generally, like, I think the Ravenels series is a stunning series. There are some books in here that are like, absolutely fabulous. You know, I love the Wallflower series. I love the Hathaway series. I, you know, I think there's a lot like I think Lisa Kleypas is a Fat, like a stunning, fabulous, amazing mm-hmm. writer. But there was just something about this one that didn't feel fully realized. I feel like Cassandra was interesting because she didn't have a crazy drive to like, you know, like Pandora, create board games mm-hmm. or like Garrett, who's a doctor, you know, like she didn't have this like major desire to do something like groundbreaking in the world, mm-hmm. in in the world. She wanted to help people, and that's noble. And I like that. I like that sometimes you have a character that maybe wants to fit into a more traditional role. Yes. And to celebrate that is 100% wonderful. I just feel like we didn't get much of a celebration here. You yeah. know, like like you said, she just wasn't fully realized. And I thought it was interesting because also there were multiple places in the first half of the book where I highlighted the writing. And I said, God, like this feels really immature. And I was kind of surprised that it got through editing that way, just because, not because it was bad, but it was just very plain. And so, like, I just, from Lisa Klepis, I expect, like, perfection. And she has such a way with words Mm -hmm. that it stood out to me. And it was just, like, very, like, moments where it would be, like, she would just explain things. Like, and it felt to me like something you're like, okay, I need to, my inspiration is in the next scene. I just need to get this stuff down mm-hmm. and then I'll come back to that and make it better later. Yeah. And it and it wasn't made better. It was just like, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it was like, where's the cadence? Where's the anything? And it was just a few paragraphs here and there. But I think that also kind of is why, like, it just didn't feel it didn't feel as polished as as her other things. Mm-hmm. The second half feels like a different book. I would than agree the first with that. Half yeah, I think once, but like you said, like once they decide that they're going to marry and they like decide that they're going to be interested, like a whole new kind of story emerges in that sense. Yeah, 
I agree. So let's get a little bit more into our hero, Tom. So what did you think about him? I really like Tom as a character. I think Mm -hmm. that when I was writing the notes for this, like the biggest thing I wanted to convey was like Tom's almost his his literal his literal brain and that like almost like there's almost an innocence about him when he talks about things like feelings because he just doesn't quite understand them. And like, I just I love that, you know, his whole thing is he's like, well, I guess I'll try reading these books to try and he reads them all and he he doesn't get he doesn't put them down and get like, oh, books are dumb because I'm not getting what I want out of them. He's like, let me read more because I know there's more out there. And he gets really into them. But each time he reads it, he's like, the for example is in the epilogue, the whole idea of the message of Tom Sawyer being like, let others do the work for you. You yeah. know, like his literal brain just can't process that. And I just find that very charming in a very like innocent kind of way. I agree. And I don't know if it's because that I've been on a major Bones kick, but he reminds me a lot of Bones, right? The character Bones, Dr. Temperance Brennan, because she's very literal and rational. And like that's, she, she kind of like lives in that box. And I also kind of wonder if Tom was inspired by neuroatypical people or if maybe he had some, some sort of Asperger's or something. And I think that that would have been more interesting if he'd had like a little bit played a little bit more into that but maybe that wasn't the character that she saw for him I don't know but he reminds me like I said a lot of bones where like rationality is you know the the source of truth that they cling to Mm -hmm. it's also very endearing and then you know there are moments where you know he leads with his heart and he buys a newspaper in a day you know he does it the way that he knows how that's Mm -hmm. how he's like that's how he can show affection by doing something to help the people that he loves so I I really love Tom too there are just he has a lot of great moments he is the most realized character in this book I would say Mm -hmm. and it's funny because I read this book almost two weeks ago before recording this now. So it's been a little bit of time since I read it, but I'm going to stick with my rating that I had in my head from when I read it because I feel like it would be lower now, but I I have a higher rating. So I'm going to give Tom an eight. That's that's pretty much where I'm at actually. And I think that, and maybe it was just me, like when I was writing the notes for this and going back over it, I just was like, I just, I really like Tom. Like, and I just yeah. I kept wanting like I don't even necessarily think it did that great a job like I, like I just really like him and he has these really great lines and the whole idea of like I mean that little moment where they're looking at the marriage stone in Jersey and he's talking about like Euler's infinity symbol and he mm-hmm. just has to end it with he's, he's like because she's probably looking at him all doe wide and he's just like mathematically speaking that's what it means you know like because he just has a lot of knowledge and he just really needs to convey that but he has such a literal brain but I think that was kind of a safety net for him it was just very easy to be like literal and this because then you could lock things away like my basically my foster dad like kicked me out because I wanted to court his daughter and I just wasn't like I was trash to him you know so for him to be like nope, he did this for A, B, and C reason, and I can understand A, B, and C versus, like, I just wasn't good enough for him. Yeah. So what's your final rating for Tom? Oh, he's an eight. I like him. Okay, (laughs) cool. And then how about Cassandra? See, Cassandra is harder for me to rate because I just don't feel like I really know her. Cheers. 
I feel the same way. I feel like she has these snarky, cool moments, you know, when she sings the song for Basil, you know, or she kind of comes up behind Tom and says, like, well, this is what Tom wants yeah, in her life. You and know, I love like that. And I just and I think she is practical and she's caring. And I think all these things, but I just really didn't I came away not knowing her. She also had some moments of low self-esteem, which is fine. I think that that's that's normal for any person to have their ups and downs of self-esteem. Mm-hmm. But I, I got a little frustrated with them personally at, at times. Like it kind of went on for a while and I didn't feel like there was a real resolution to them. Like, yeah. you know, I just feel like we didn't get the resolution. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just I was kind of let down by that. So I don't know. You want to give your rating or you want me to go first? <laughs> um, I mean, I think I'm just going to I put her in the middle at like a five because like I just I don't know. Oh, where, wow. Like, but like five or six. I don't know. Like, I want to rate her higher because the things I did get from her, I really liked. But I just really don't. I don't feel like I know her. I, I agree. I I was going to give her a 6.5. I want to like her so badly. I was so... I was so hopeful for this book and I was so interested and I and I think she had like shiny little moments but mm-hmm. to me a 7 is like solidly good slash getting towards great yeah. and she just didn't she didn't get there for me and there was this kind of unknown that I felt through the book and I just I was bummed by that. Yeah, and I mean for me that was really like I think that the disjointedness of the beginning of the book I think could have been made up for if Cassandra shined as much as Tom did but I just I think that this book was really it was more of an exploration of Tom as a character and you get Tom through all the all these all the Ravenel books have Tom in them like you know about him he's yeah and he's a firm character and I love that we got to know him more but at the same time too I just wish we could have gotten to know Cassandra more I agree so do you have a favorite quote so I have two one I just think is funny so This is when Tom is trying to get understanding about emotions and fixing his problems from books. (laughs) So it says, For some reason, Tom had felt a genuine sense of relief when Anne discovered the letter and realized Wentworth still loved her. But how could Tom experience a real feeling about someone who'd never existed and events that had never happened? The question left him puzzled and fascinated. Oh, I loved that too. Oh, Tom. And then my last one is like really great. And so... Tom was basically telling Cassandra all about the books he'd read and all about his terrible derivatives of knowledge from these books, his very literal lessons that he took from them instead of the, you know, metaphorical lessons. And so Mm -hmm. he and Cassandra are having an argument and... Not for the first time, Tom reflected that there was no understanding women. It wasn't that they were illogical, just the opposite. Their logic was of a higher order, too complex and advanced to submit to a complete proof calculus. (laughs) So good. Uh, So I have two also. And one is just uh, part of a conversation between Tom and actually Mm -hmm. Devin. And Tom says, how could I be lonely when I'm always surrounded by people? You're estranged from your family, Devin pointed out. It's not a family. It's a biologically related group of destructive opportunists, like termites. (laughs) That one's good. Oh, I love him. And the other one is just a little moment of Lisa Kleypas writing that's so Mm -hmm. beautiful. And she has these moments. And I know that I said that, like, you know, there there were other moments here where I felt the writing just didn't quite shine with her usual Mm -hmm. sparkle. But I'd like to leave on this note. And it's just some thinking from Lady Cassandra. 
She'd grown up with Pandora, whose twisty-turny, hippity-hoppity brain had enlivened an unbearably secluded life. In fact, Mr. Severin possessed a kind of contained energy that reminded her a little of Pandora. One could see it in the eyes, the quicksilver workings of a mind that ran at a faster speed than those of other people. Mm. And I just thought that was so perfect. It was that moment in the very beginning of the book when you realized that they were Mm -hmm. meant for each other because Cassandra understands people like that. And she's, uh, and so, yeah, no, I, I, that was, I that really was a good line. That. All right. So steaminess rating. Um, steaminess rating was like cup of tea. Like it, it was cup yeah, of tea. I, I didn't, I didn't find it to be particularly steamy. I felt like their kisses were v- yes. like really steamy. Yeah. You know, like when they finally got to kiss, it was like, whoo, thank God. But, um. Yeah, there was even like one sex scene where I really found the writing to be a little like cringy for me. Like she she uses the word the beautiful feminine shape of her. I mean, when you take it out of context, it could work, but I think when you put it everywhere else, like in with everything yeah. else, it just it didn't quite work for me mm-hmm. at that moment. Um so yeah, I didn't find it to be too steamy. I also, yeah, when the family almost walked in on them, like I totally understand the like stress of like they could be I, found out as yeah, sexy. I will but- say too, I felt it was like a realistic talk about it in some ways because a lot of times in these books, I'm like, how are they not being discovered? You know, like there's not yes, enough time. That's and true. this one, they like actually did like basically blatantly almost yeah. walk in on them like a bunch of times. I'm just like. Uh, but like we don't we don't need them to do that <laughs> yeah <laughs> and how many encounters did we have did we have three i think i counted three all right three it is so feminist recap i have some feelings i mean lisa Kleypas is such a feminist mm-hmm. writer i would say and like there's moments you know when when we talk about Cassandra's consent, um, you know, and Devin being all like when when she kind of gets pawed at by Lord mm-hmm. Lambert and she says no, and then Devin's like, we support you 100%, you know, like that supportive family and like not slut shaming yeah. her. Like, of course, that's, that's very feminist and progressive. Mm-hmm. I do want to talk a minute about Cassandra's body image issues. Yes. So I don't know how you read it. But I think the way we were supposed to read it is that Cassandra's a little bit fuller figured. Yes. But I just read it that she felt fat all the time. And I didn't feel like she had a lot of self-confidence in her figure. I didn't – I don't know. I just felt like there was something lacking. Rather than feeling like I am a, I am a curvy, beautiful woman, she just was like, everything's so tight on me. And I feel really awkward in my, in my tight skin. And – I don't remember there being like a redeeming anything towards the end. There was there was a moment where Tom cuz Cassandra tells Tom that she needs to like I think he's like oh have a biscuit from the tea cart and she's like oh I need to reduce and he's like reduce what? And she's like this. And he's like I don't see a problem with this, you know. And she's like, what if I was big as a house? And he's like, more of you to love. Yeah, you're right. I do remember that now. I just still, to me, reading it throughout, I just didn't get, like, it didn't didn't work for me. You know, like, I felt more like she was insecure and... I don't I don't know. I didn't I didn't feel like the whole 180, you know what I mean, from it. Yeah, I 
there wasn't really a resolution there. And I mean, in some ways, I definitely related to that in the idea of like, that's how I've been feeling about myself lately. <laughs> no, cheer. I mean, cheers. Um, I, I just, I've gone through like, it too. Like we know? all do. I think like some yeah. days you're like, sh- like my pants don't fit the way that that I like them to fit, and I feel like a freaking yeah. house right now. And it's like I look at myself in the mirror, and I like I don't look bad, and then I like see myself in pictures, and I'm like, ugh, you know. No, I know we're all very hard on ourselves, but I don't know. I didn't like reading it like that. I the way that it read to yeah. me, for me as a reader, as a per, as a person, I. I didn't enjoy Cassandra's feelings about herself. And I've read plenty of other books where girls have low self-esteem or don't feel good about their bodies. And there is a payoff. And there is, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there, there's a there's an arc to the journey. I just didn't feel it here. And that's maybe just me. And that's why I was curious how you felt about it. Yeah. No, and I – it didn't really – but this is still going back to I feel like we didn't get to know Cassandra because we didn't – we didn't see that growth in that sense where she either grew out of it or she just learned to accept it. You know, it was kind of talked about at the beginning. But I feel like maybe it was because part of it was just related to the sense that she was trying to attract someone she could love and find that love marriage. And she was like – was like, oh, well, maybe I'm not finding it because, like, I'm not, you know, the twig that's in – like that's popular right now, you know? And so then once things got involved with everything else, maybe that just kind of got pushed to the side. I don't know. But I think that Tom as a character was very supportive of her. And I love that little moment at the end where he was like, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, like do something to stop me, you know, like in that sense, like he's like, you can use my tools. Like, I'm sure you want to do all these things. And she's like, well, yeah, I can do all those things. And he's like, good for you. Go do those things, you know? And her moment of, will I be successful? He's like, of course you will. Yeah, no, no. I think this book is a wholehearted supporter. I just was curious because, you know, I I kind of responded negatively to Cassandra's self-esteem issues. I was wondering, you know, if, if you felt the same or you didn't quite get the same feeling out of it. You know, I think it's always interesting. Yeah, I mean, I... I got it as a relatable point, but I think that for me, it didn't stick with me for the rest of the book. Mm-hmm. But like, but I agree that there wasn't a, resol- a resolution behind it. And that was kind of frustrating. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I mean, I've seen some other people who've gotten arcs talking about it online. And I've seen other opinions, people who totally, you know, thought differently about Cassandra's self-esteem stuff. And I, I was kind of surprised that that was how they read it because I read it so differently. And again, I think it's interesting because your background and your personal experiences often make you see something through a different light. So mm-hmm. of course, listeners, if any of you guys have very different opinions from us, we would love to hear about it. We always want to hear from you guys. And our email is romancepod at gmail.com. Yes. But we have one more thing to do, and that is to give our book a final book rating. Yes. We do need to give our book a final book rating. Zoe, why don't you start? So (laughs) I wanted to love this book. I love the Ravenels. The cover was Mm -hmm. all sorts of hype. And I tried to go into this book also, you know, with my expectations neutral um, as best as I could. Mm -hmm. But I really expect more from Lisa Kleypas and was disappointed by this book. I was underwhelmed, I should say. Um, Mm -hmm. So to me – Unfortunately, this is now, I would say, my least favorite book in the series. 
I wouldn't mm. say like skip this book. I, I definitely think if you're reading The Ravenels, this is a perfectly fine read. Like this is not a book that's hard to get through or kind of like, you know, not worth your time. I think this is a perfectly fine read. And especially if you're reading the series, like, oh my gosh, finish it out. And Tom has a lot of delightful moments. But overall, you know, I think I said it before, a seven is like a good to a great. And I just I can't give it that. So to me, this book is a 6.5. It's close. It has its moments, but it Mm -hmm. just didn't get there for me. Yeah. I think for me, yeah, I think 6.5 is good because in my head, I want to say seven, but like it literally like it's just because I like Tom. Yeah. Like Tom for me really like lifts it up and then the other parts of it kind of are fine. But yeah, I would agree with 6.5 too. All right. Well, you know, she's written a billion amazing books and they can't all be that amazing, I guess. They can't. No. And well, and you know, that's the, it's just the thing that's part of life, you know, like there's going to be books that you really look forward to and they're, they're good. They're just not like amazing. And that's yeah, fine. And I, it was not a chore for me to read this book. <laughs> Let's say no, that. I read it. I read it very yeah. quickly. I think I stayed up pretty late reading it. Like I oh, I read it in two days. I stayed up. Like I started it one night. I read it and then I was up late and then the next night I finished it. Like I read it very quickly and I did enjoy it. The dialogue in it was fabulous. Like I really liked the yeah, dialogue. Absolutely. But yeah, there are just a couple of things that like compared to some of the other ones, it wasn't up there for me. So Zoe... Now that we've concluded with uh, Chasing Cassandra, what are we reading next time? So next week, we are reviewing an author that we have yet to review on the podcast again. And I know, and again, can't believe we haven't gotten to this author yet, but we are going to be reading a novella by the incomparable Tessa Dare. And that novella is Lord Dashwood Missed Out. And we're also going to be joined by a special guest in the second half of our episode while we talk about it. So I'm super excited about that. This is super pumped. Ready to go. I love Tessa Dare, so I'm very happy to read this book. Yes. Again. (laughs) And this novella is part of her Spindle Cove series, but it is truly a bit of a standalone in the series. Like the other characters do kind of make a, an appearance. But as we said in our list uh, a couple of weeks ago, when we alluded to this book, (laughs) um, (laughs) it's about an author who's traveling to Spindle Cove to do a book signing. So not one of the friends of Spindle Cove, you know, Mm. intimately. Yes. Well, I'm very happy to revisit Spindle Cove. After our Gal Pals episode, I was, I've was i been thinking about Spindle Cove. <laughs> it's a great series. And wanting to revisit it. <laughs> yeah. So once again, if you guys leave us a review this month, please let us know. And we would love to send you a bookmark. And if you've enjoyed what you heard here today, we would love it if you would tell a friend. Yes. Please rate, review, and subscribe. So thank you all for listening. Thanks for bearing with us with my cold (laughs) and join us next time as we read lord dashwood missed out by tessa dare and may all your ever afters end happily
Tea and Strumpets is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Caveat here. This reminds me of a book that is not historical romance, but it's like, I think it's more of a young adult book than just to romance, but you could classify it as young adult romance. Mm-hmm. Like, it's very good. And it's called A Princess Below Stairs. Oh. And it is a bit of a, I want to say it's like a, a bit of the little princess trope. Okay. But like, which is a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to The Little Princess the other day and like someone was talking about it and I was like, ah, oh, The Princess Below Stairs. And it was like, the book is just very strong in my brain as a very good book. Which is just a side note, (laughs) because I was thinking about it. So I decided to share that with all of you. I also was sad, too, because, like, we get Winterborn, we get Pandora, we get St. Vincent, we get Kathleen, we get Devin, we get Garrett. Heck, we get, like, even a nod to Ethan. We, like, barely talk about Helen. That's true. (laughs) That's true. Like... She's mentioned as in, like, she's married to Winterborn, but that's it. And I'm like, well, what What the heck? There's another sister in there. Why does she not have a place in this book? <sighs> hey, I mean, sometimes probably things get cut. I don't know. Editing. But <sighs> editing. True. Yeah. True. I was sad, though, because, I mean, they literally bring everybody else in and then they, like, don't. I do remember reading all. it. And at some point I was like, well, why isn't Helen here? Like, it was very weird. Yeah. I was like, why, why isn't Helen here? But, hey, I mean... Yeah, we, we can speculate all we want, but who knows? She just wasn't there.